everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah, I'm on staff here at High Point Church, and I am joined today by Devin White, our associate pastor. As a church, we're currently going through a sermon series called Unbrandable, focusing on how God wants us to know Him and how He reveals Himself to us in very real ways, but He doesn't simplify Himself to accommodate our preferences, our tastes, our ability to understand the world. Today we're going through some of the questions that were left over remaining from our AMA Ask Me Anything time during our Sunday services. And we're starting with questions from October 3rd, when Pastor Nick preached on the topic of meekness, how God's, how meekness is unbrandable and out of step with the world. So we're putting Devin in the hot seat today uh, to respond to some questions. Please bear in mind that Devin is not the one who originally preached this sermon, but um, we are picking his brain for some of his wisdom on these topics today. So Devin, welcome. Thanks, Hannah. It's great to be here. I think the last time you were here, you were candidating for the position, and you were speaking to us out of some of your expertise. Um, so it's really glad to have you. We're really glad to have you here with us as staff. Um, we're giving thanks that God brought you here and that we get to benefit from your willingness and wisdom today on the podcast. I'm so thankful I didn't scare you away on the first podcast. <laughs> so let's just dive in with the first question. This is... How do you, while working on cultivating a spirit of meekness, deal with the sinful rage or anger that comes up when you see injustice? Thinking of dealing with extended family and wanting to leave room for repentance on their part, but feeling extremely angry about their actions. That's a fantastic question. And we're coming up toward the holidays and all of us are going to be around more family mm-hmm. than usual. And I, I'm blessed that when I'm with my family, that's a time of peace and joy. But I recognize that I, I may I may be in the very, very fortunate minority in that case. So th- the first thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, is to be sure that we recognize that our own emotions aren't our enemies. Mm-hmm. And that the feeling of rage and anger that we sometimes experience when we are faced with injustice is actually evidence that we bear the image of God. Hmm. That in the same way that uh, that God feels sorry and God feels angry and God feels joy, like th- those God's affections are they come to us with with the image of God. Hmm. So the fact that when we see injustice in front of us, sometimes even in the members of our own families, that we can feel anger, sorrow, grief, uh, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the question's worded presupposes that rage or anger is necessarily sinful. And it, it may just be the case that whoever this person is, whatever the situation is, they're actually confronted with a scenario in which anger and grief are particularly godly way of responding. Now, um, not, not the, well, this is why scripture says be angry and don't sin. Right? Mm-hmm. So this, this is where potentially we, uh, we cross over into, uh, well, we get into dicey territory when we feel angry. I mean, it kind of, it short circuits our ability to think clearly. So if our, if our reaction 
in the face of injustice or sin in front of us is to look at the person with anger mm-hmm. and to look at them as, you know, a miserable sinner. And if we don't have in the back of our minds there, but for the grace of God, go I, mm. if, if anger at injustice doesn't leave us with, with compassion and a desire to pray both for the victims of injustice and the perpetrators of injustice, then we've strayed from Christian meekness. Mm. And I have to say that for me personally, when uh, when I've been around scenarios where there has been just incredible injustice that I know one person has done done to another person, and I feel myself slipping into judgment, that's that's usually me trying to like justify myself and make myself seem better off than, well, I would never do what that person did, therefore I am X and they are Y. Uh, if I ever find myself in that scenario, I have to stop and pray for the person whom I'm tempted to judge. Mm-hmm. I have to leave room for the justice and the judgment of God, knowing that, like Scripture says, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And to the extent that I don't want to fall under the judgment and justice of God, mm-hmm. I shouldn't want that for anybody else, even people who have done unspeakable evil. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it reminds me of something that has come up in a couple different contexts here at High Point recently about, um, you know, being angry at sin in the world and remembering that um, perpetrators are also victims of sin and brokenness and depravity. And that doesn't excuse the sin um, and it doesn't make injustice irrelevant or unimportant or undeserving of our attention or our anger. Um, but trying to have that heaven, that kingdom perspective on the person who's perpetrating injustice in our eyes. Yeah, Hannah, when I hear you say that, I mean, what comes to mind is sort of the classic summary of, the, of progression and salvation. Mm. Like when, when we start before God alienated from grace, we are unable not to sin. Mm-hmm. Literally anything we do is going to be so corrupted by sin that uh, that it's impossible to please God. Then, after saving faith and baptism and union with Christ and the Spirit, we become able not to sin. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, for those of us who spend a long life in the church, some of us who, who came to faith very early in life, it's easy to forget what it was like to be in that first stage where we were just unable not to sin. And uh, this, is, this is part of the new life in grace, though, is to also to be able to look on people who, who are now as you once were and to look on yourself and remember how you once were and to be so thankful that you are mm-hmm. no longer a slave to sin. Mm-hmm. But if, if you look on a slave to sin and you blame them for being a slave to sin when they're just thorough, they're taken captive by a hostile power. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite metaphors for, for sin is basically the human being as, uh, as sort of a computer and sin is like the rogue software that's taken control of the hardware so that the hardware just can't perform its original function anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, when we look on people who, who are perpetrating injustice, we, our hearts ought to break with compassion for them, even as our hearts break for, (laughs) for the victims of that sin. Mm. And I appreciate that the person who submitted this question gave us a really practical application in our families, right? Um, Because I think of, you know, myself and my family and 
times, seasons when I feel a lot of anger towards certain members and I feel forgive unforgiveness in my heart. And I've had the rude awakening to the reality that like, in my heart, there's something in me that enjoys that they enjoys hating them for that, <laughs> mm. that, um, I don't stay up at night wishing for their redemption. I don't, I don't lose sleep over grieving that they're trapped in this sin and that they're perpetuating this injustice and that this is tearing apart their spirit and distancing them from God. I stay up at night wishing that they would suffer for it (laughs) or, um, you know, thinking of just the right thing to say that will, you know, hurt them in some way or, um, thinking that I can do justice by, um, you know, um, by getting their attention in some unloving way. Mm -hmm. Um, and there have been times when the spirit leads me to realize like how wicked I am, that that's the reality under my, in my spirit. Um, and that I'm doing injustice against them, Mm. um, in perpetuating that cycle. And, um, I think you're right. Like with the holidays coming up, this is such a, a good thing for us to be meditating on. Oh my. Yeah. Listening to you talk. I mean, the biblical passages that come to mind for me are like all from the crucifixion, Mm. Jesus praying for the people who are crucifying him and asking, asking that the father wouldn't hold this sin against them. You know, they don't know what they're doing. And, uh, Jesus, Jesus saying to Peter that if he wanted, he could call 12 legions of angels and none of this would happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when, when we do find ourselves enjoying that feeling of moral superiority, Mm -hmm. especially when we're dealing with folks who are wronging us personally, it's, uh, that's a time when it's hard to follow a crucified savior. And that's where meekness comes into this, right? Like exactly. what does meekness look like? Yeah. In it's seeking power justice? under control is, mm-hmm. is the way some folks have defined mm-hmm. it. And Jesus has his incredible power mm-hmm. that he decides not to exercise for his own good. And yeah, to save his own life, he wouldn't exercise his power to save his own life because it would have meant destroying the people who were killing him. Mm. And he, he valued and loved them so greatly that he would leave room for the mercy and the compassion and the kindness of God over Mm. time. Yeah. One last thing that comes to mind on this is Nick mentioned in talking about meekness, that meekness requires trust that we have to trust that our God will bring out justice and it's not under our control to do. Um, and I think that's an important lesson for us to remember too. Yeah. Amen. Um, let's move to our second question. The person writes, you mentioned that some people use justice as an excuse for revenge. What are the differences between justice and revenge? And how can we tell when we want revenge instead of justice? Is there a kind of justice that's not good? That was maybe three or four questions in one. So feel free to tear like take that down a little bit by bit if you want. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm going to totally satisfy 
the author of this question, but the first thing to mention is just that uh, there isn't any one such thing as justice. Like, you know, if, even if you went around the world today or you looked back throughout the scope of human history, people have defined and tried to practice justice in different ways at different times. So, um, you know, there's one philosopher whose work in particular comes to mind. His name's Alistair McIntyre. And he wrote a really important book in the late 80s called Whose Justice, Which Rationality? And in that book, he, he basically goes through three or four different paradigms for what justice is and how it's, how it's supposed to work in the world. So he starts in like ancient Greece with Aristotle. And then he works his way forward through like Thomas Aquinas and into the Scottish Enlightenment. I, I can't remember if he talks about Locke or Hobbes, but you know, one of those Enlightenment era philosophers. And what, uh, what McIntyre basically argues or shows is that these people all kind of stand in the same tradition of trying to figure out what justice is, but they all describe it in different ways. And the reason why they all describe it in different ways and, and expect that we should try to pursue just ends in different ways is because they disagree about what human rationality is. They disagree about the way human beings go about interpreting, understanding, and acting in the world around them. So in a sense, um, the, the first thing to bear in mind is that there's not necessarily going to be one definition of justice that's always enacted everywhere at all times and all places. And we all just know what we mean when we say justice. Now, I'm not, I'm not just trying to give a philosophy lesson here. The reason I say that is because the question for a Christian ought, ought to be whether or not Christians subscribe to a, or ought to subscribe to a special or distinctively Christian view of justice that may or may not be compatible with the justices they see prized in the world around them. And I think, I think this is one of the great dangers for Christians like the Christians who worship at high point, who generally find themselves a little more comfortable with like the broader political and legal justice system within which they're like, they live their lives and on which their church relies. You know, we, we live in a, we live in a social order where we have a first amendment that protects our right to assemble and worship as the people of God and to practice our faith as we please. So we think of justice as the sort of thing that's supposed to support us and enable us to, to be our, to be the sort of Christian people that we're called to be. But for most of Christian history, it hasn't been the case that the church can always rely on justice in the world to support it. So th this is why and you're, are you using justice there in the sense of like, as meted out by the government? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because at the end of the day, the, you know, the justice underlying like American the American legal justice system is something more like the justice of the Scottish enlightenment that someone like McIntyre would talk about. And because it's the justice, the vision of justice that comes out of the enlightenment, it's a vision of justice that presupposes a certain view of human beings and human rationality that we may not be able to totally subscribe to. Um, it's not to say that we're completely incompatible, just that we have to recognize the distinct nuances between them. And I think what I would want to say is that for the author of this question, when we're trying to distinguish between justice and revenge and we're trying to define our terms, the thing to remember is that 
God's justice is the justice that comes at the end. This is why the messianic prophecies about Jesus include descriptions of him as the one who will uh, like appoint justice for the nations. So that at some, in, in some sense, even at a time where you know, in world and Christian history, the church in America and in a place like Madison is relatively comfortable with the justice that it sees in the world around it, sometimes more, sometimes less. But if, if God's divine justice ceases to be the, like the thing that we hope for, like deep down in our gut when we look around and we do see injustice in the world and sometimes the injustice doesn't seem like it's getting solved, that's, that's an opportunity to hope in, in the return of Christ mm. and where we'll see him We'll see him uh, ruling and reigning in all his in all his power and authority. I mean, like Hebrews two says that right now Christ all all authority belongs to Christ, mm-hmm. but we don't see him exercising all authority right mm-hmm. now, and that's the tension that we live in when we try to navigate what we think about justice. So I think that it's it's that sort of view of justice that sees Christ as the just one mm-hmm. that gives the context for how we're supposed to distinguish between justice and revenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if the if the if the thing that we hope for or the thing that we try to bring about, try if we want to make our own attempts to make justice happen now, prior to the coming of Christ and receiving all rule and authority, uh, then then necessarily we're we're probably going to slip into revenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. Um, so. Maybe on a on a smaller scale, you know, if you're discipling someone or is talking with a friend and they, um, you know, consider a situation where a spouse breaks his or her vow um, and wounds you, causes you damage, or a boss is mistreating you, um, you know, some of these really common, um, tragic or hard to deal with situations, and we are trying to check our heart and thinking you know, what is it that I really want here? I want to want what God wants, but how do I examine myself to know if I want revenge or justice? Boy, I mean, I've, I've lived a very easy life compared to so many of the people that I know. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know people who have been cruelly wronged by the people closest to them, even their spouses, their children, their parents, but just speaking for myself in those, in those few circumstances where I have been wrong to a much lesser extent, I almost never need to wonder because I know that what I want is revenge. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's just my bent. I want that person to suffer as I've suffered. If I ever find myself willing harm, for somebody else wanting to see someone else in emotional pain and physical pain and financial hardship. If I'm, if I'm excited about the day when finally I see that person stumble and fall flat on their face, then I've fallen short of the character of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. Who, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last part of their question they ask, is there a kind of justice that is not good? So 
judging by not the world's definition of justice or the justice system, but if we're thinking of justice as it actually is, is there ever a point when we would be wanting that and it would not be a good thing for us to want it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with that, with that last question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like there's probably something really intensely practical about it. I mean, I, I feel in some ways like one theologian, uh, well, I mean, it was John Calvin, you know, when he talks about hell and you, you behind Calvin's discussion of hell, you, you kind of get this sense that, I mean, Calvin wrestles with the thought that this is some, in some sense, like an ultimate expression of God's justice. Mm -hmm. But how can that really be good? How can you, how can that be both good and just at the same time? So there is something kind of profound in this question. Um, and what I want to say is that all of God's justice will ultimately good because God is good. Everything he does is good. Everything he makes is good. Everything he enacts is good. But I think that speaking for myself as a very finite creature who sometimes tends to want revenge rather than justice, I already know that my own, uh, my own will and affections are so broken and so in the process of being repaired that I'm not always going to emotionally agree with God's justice and so that I won't always feel the goodness of God's justice right away. But I trust that the more that I'm restored into the image of God in Christ, the more my mind will agree with his justice and the more my emotions will intuitively respond in joyful ways to his justice. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see, third question. They write... How this is going in a little different direction. How important are emotions in relation to belief? They say, I've chosen to believe, but I don't feel an emotional connection to God. I think this is a great question, and I think it's a really brave question. I think it's one that many more people wonder than give voice to out loud. Absolutely. Um, so insofar as like belief is just kind of a stand-in for like the Christian life that we all live, the life of faith. Emotions are incredibly important because, well, you know, the, the topic of emotions has actually kind of come up in the first couple of questions, haven't they, Hannah? I mean, I, th I think that all our emotional life is an expression of and uh, a response to God's creative work in us, making us bear his image. So if the life of belief is the response of the whole person to God, then yeah, you, your emotional life is really very important. So what do we do then when we don't necessarily feel that emotional connection with God? I mean, this is, it's kind of interesting the way that at least evangelical churches in America sometimes self-select and sort themselves into the kinds of churches that really, <laughs> yeah. really value and prioritize emotion and affection and those that really on the other hand, tend to prioritize right thinking and right, right doctrine. And for the record, High Point tends to fall in the latter category. <laughs> yeah, and, and I grew up in churches that always were in the former. Right. And it, it drove me kind of crazy because I was like, this is good, but this is incomplete. Mm -hmm. I mean, but at the end of the day, right feeling and right thinking uh, are two sides of the same coin, or at least they ought to be. So, yeah, 
but what do we do then when we don't feel an emotional connection to God? And I, I think there's a couple answers to that. If, and if I really wish that I could talk to this person directly, because uh, there are a few diagnostic questions that I would want to ask. You heard that. You can shoot him an email if you're out there. That's right. <laughs> D. White at High Point Church. Um, one thing I'd want to know is how long this person uh, has been in the church. Are they a relatively new believer? Are they a believer who's been in Christ for a couple of years? And, and like maybe when they started, they, they had some like real butterflies every time they opened up their Bible. Uh, are they someone who's been, you know, who's been in the church for 40 years? Because it's normal in the course of a Christian life for, uh, for our affection and our emotional response to God to shift and change. And usually always in the process of growth, but not always necessarily in a comfortable process of growth. Like, like in the same way that for most of us who, uh, who have lived through our teenage years into our 20s, we know what the experience of growing pains are like. Growing pains aren't fun, they, but they do, uh, they do come along with a process of growth that makes our bodies more like themselves, not less. In the same way, sometimes like emotional distance can be like a spiritual growing pain. So um, one, one really important devotional book, really an old one from, I'm trying to remember the dates now, but the author is St. John of the Cross, and he wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And when he talks about sort of the experience of emotional distance from God, of effective distance from God, he calls it the dark night of sense. Um, he says that that is absolutely terrible for us who are for, cause he's writing for monks and nuns. These are people who have like left everything in the world, locked themselves in a room and decided to do nothing but pray mm. until they die or Jesus comes. Mm -hmm. And so for folks like that, what, what is your joy except your experience of union with God and, yeah. and resting in his presence? So what happens to someone like that when they no longer feel that affection? And, and John of the Cross's answer is that this is a purifying aridity. This is Can a purifying... Can you define aridity for yeah, us? Yeah, it's dryness. Mm. So, I mean, you know... As in arid. Yeah, yes. as in desert. Yes. Right. So it's, it's basically like walking through an emotional desert mm -hmm. when you, when suddenly you pray and you know, the words just kind of turn to dust in your mouth and you open your Bible and it's like reading a book of uncooked oatmeal and nothing sinks <laughs> in. Um, and his answer is that this is God taking you beyond even the sweetness of your current emotional bond to him to something better and higher and purer. And that doesn't mean that there won't be more emotion in the future. It just means that right now God's ordained a season for you know to, for your test for your struggle for your progress that involves perceived absence and distance and lack of connection hmm. so that that's the answer that i would give to somebody who had been in the faith for a while and was used to feeling an emotional connection with mm -hmm. god but for a new believer for a younger believer who heard all these people talk talking about how much they enjoyed prayer and bible reading and they're just looking over sort of like oh my gosh what's wrong with me um, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. But the, these are the sorts of things, this sort of emotional connection to God is something that happens over years and decades of searching for God. 
I don't know if this person's married or not. I happen to be married. I've been married for seven years, but I know that there is no way that I could feel for my wife, like the emotional reaction that I have to my wife right now. I could not have felt that in the earliest days of our relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always really liked my wife, (laughs) but I didn't have that, the super intense emotional bond and reaction that I have to her now when I see her happy, when I see her struggle. Um, these things come with time because it is a relationship. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of Christian art uh, is an Eastern Orthodox icon. You could look it up online. If you just if you ty- typed into Google, Rublev Trinity, R-U-B-L-E-V. Uh, and the Rublev Trinity is basically an iconographic representation of the Holy Trinity sitting around a table. It's like three huge glorious angels on three sides of a table and there's an open spot at the table and the open spot at the table is for you. Hmm. So when you see the Rublev Trinity, you're supposed to see father, son and Holy spirit inviting you to special fellowship and communion with God. And if you're a young believer and this is the question you're asking, you know, why don't I feel this? It's it's because you're early in a journey. It's because you're at the beginning stages of a process that culminates with such close union with God at the table of fellowship that an outside observer might not be able to tell you apart from the other members of the Trinity. Hmm. So that's, uh, that's my quick, yeah. my quick answer is that if you persevere, uh, if you persevere, mm-hmm. if you seek for God with all your heart, you will find him. Uh, a, a book that I'd recommend is A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. Psalm 63, go, you know, go read Psalm 63, Uh, that experience of perceived absence and longing for God. Take that as a sign that God is calling you deeper. Like most people go throughout their lives without even thinking that it's weird that they don't have an emotional affective response to God. The fact that you even think that is evidence of grace in your life, calling you to deeper relationship and communion with God. I think that's a really encouraging thought. Um, I I also know people who have been seeking to walk with the Lord for 40 years or more. And they just, uh, I don't know if you would consider this a personality trait. They're just not deeply emotive persons. um, And they really struggle to emotionally connect with the gospel or in times of prayer with uh, the spirit and feel, feel the lack of that and grieve the lack of that and wish that they had a more expressive, um, experience in faith, but don't, don't know, don't, don't see a path to changing that. Um, because this is sort of their, the reality that they've always known. What would you say to a person in that position? Well, first I I would say that the fact that they can experience grief over it is the fact that they may be more emotive and effective than than even they know or mm-hmm. have experienced about themselves. For a lot for a lot of folks, uh, both men and women, there can be a lot of reasons why we are kind of emotionally stunted. And often it stems from just the trauma of relating to other people in the course of our lives. And so we map onto our relationship with God the emotional traumas of our relationship with each other. But I think that you have you, uh, I'm speaking like directly to a person in that scenario that you have every reason 
to hope in God because God is renewing, God is restoring. This is, this is the work of the Spirit in human beings right now that Second Corinthians calls the Holy Spirit and uh, encountering the Holy Spirit now basically enjoying the powers of the age to come. So that means that everything that will be ours in the resurrection of the dead, the Holy Spirit makes available to us right now. And as we persist and cooperate with God, cooperating in our own sanctification, our own progressive growth toward who we will be in Christ in the resurrection, um, we don't necessarily get to choose the order of progression that God takes us through in sanctification. But over time, emotional healing is every bit as much a part of enjoying the powers of the age to come and the resurrection from the dead as like the resurrection of physical bodies that will no longer be subject to death and corruption. Mm-hmm. So persevere. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that hopeful note. <laughs> um, the next submission we have is not so much as a question, as a sort of comment. Um, the person writes, I think the Lord is bringing about a new work in Madison. Can we take a moment to boldly pray as a church for revival and a fresh outpouring of his spirit within High Point and more broadly in all of Madison? So, Devin, I know you're not new to Madison, that you have a lot of roots here, um, but you are newly back. Um, so maybe you can speak a little bit to Madison, but more broadly to, um, you know, what what do we do when we're, you know, what does it mean to pray for revival and for a fresh outpouring of the spirit? And how do we know when it's upon us? So here again, this is a question that I wish I could sit down and talk with the person who wrote it because, uh, in my experience, a lot of times when we, when we make statements like this, we have in mind sort of a predetermined vision of what quote revival looks like. So I mean, for myself, when I was younger, I lived through uh, a period in my church that I have a hard time coming up with language other than revival to describe it. Just a period of four years where like four or five, sometimes six days a week, we were all coming back to church. Like we recorded 16,000 first time decisions for Christ in this four year period. And um, I remember just walking around in the church and like seeing <laughs> seeing like grown people, you know, put together grown ups, the sort of people that like you wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, as lawyers or doctors or professionals, just like sobbing, mm. and 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 not in like a bad way, not like not like they're they're bereaved, but like some they're having some sort of deep, profound spiritual experience that is coming to full expression in their emotions. Like I I don't know how to explain that apart from a word like revival. And as I've studied the history of the church and the history of revival, reading about like in American history, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the revival at Cane Ridge, revival at Azusa Street. Um, I think that it's, that those experiences do teach us what God wants to do and how God will act. But what I've learned from studying those experiences and frankly from even kind of my own very limited human experiences that if you want to pray for revival that's awesome but the thing that kickstarts revival is repentance in the church of god 
Like if judgment begins with the house of God and you're really worried about the city where you live, well, you know, by all means, preach the gospel, evangelize. But there is no more compelling kickstarter of revival and the work of the spirit than repentance and turning from sin. And that begins inside the camp, not outside the camp. So before I even prayed for revival in the sense of like, I want to see thousands upon thousands of unconverted Madisonians come to Christ, or I want to see God heal the sick or anything like that. I, I think, I think the first thing I would advise this person and anyone who shares their concern to do is earnestly search the scripture and let God convict them personally and let God convict the church collectively. And I mean, this is why the classic text that every revival preacher I know turns to is if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. So it begins with us mm-hmm. and our repentance and turning from sin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly exciting to think of what God is doing and can do and wants to do in Madison and how we can be a part of that. And so really grateful for this person, um, you know, wanting to take notice of that and seek that. And I think, um, what you've given us is a really great guide and sort of, um, starting point for how do we pursue that as a, as individuals and as a community. Um, so with our AMA questions, we, we have been going through the series Unbrandable. We took a pause from that series last week. Well, not necessarily a pause, but in addition to the series, following the funeral for Simon Bellesi, which took place this past Saturday. And um, Pastor Nick shared with us um, sort of a more fleshed out version of what he shared at the funeral regarding how we wrestle with things not happening according to the way that we think they should, the way that seems right to us. Um, and this comes to mind, especially in the cases of unexpected tragedies, like the, the death of three bright young people. Um, and how do we wrestle with that emotionally with God um, and our anger or our doubt? And this person writes, we want to know the answers to everything. So how do we wrestle with this desire in the midst of knowing that God won't tell us why? Mm -hmm. In the same way that anger is an expression of the image of God in us, especially when it's rightly directed, the desire to know is also an expression of the image of God. Um, The first thing I would say to someone who's especially concerned about wrestling with the desire to know is, is just to remember the story of Adam and Eve's temptation and fall. I mean, it, it's not a mistake that the tree that they try to steal fruit from right off the bat isn't the tree of life. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, human beings were created to know and to desire knowledge. But when we try to take knowledge that we're not ready for that, that it is that we can't handle because we just don't know the consequences of it. Uh, then, then we are flirting with sin, but bear in mind also one of my favorite promises about, about the resurrection and the kingdom in first Corinthians 13 is the promise that one day 
we will know even as we are known. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, we have to weigh that against uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 about the unsearchable depths of God. That and basically the metaphor there is that God is kind of like an ocean that you can't see the bottom of. No matter how sharp your eyes are, you can't see from top to bottom. And so for now, what we, what we have to rely on, Paul and John basically say the same thing here, is we, we get to rely on the witness of the Spirit. Because the Spirit searches out everything, even the depths of God. And like Jesus says in, uh, in his description of the Spirit's work, and kind of the back third of John, that this, the Spirit, it's good for us that Jesus goes away, because when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will lead us in all truth. Mm-hmm. So we're not owed an answer, but we were made to know. And one day we will know. Uh, and I th- <laughs> the story that comes to mind from Christian history, I- I'm pretty sure this is Jonathan Edwards recounting the death of the missionary David Brainerd, hmm. that on, on Brainerd's deathbed, he was clutching his Bible and saying so many mysteries about to be revealed. Hmm. So... I think, I think that once again, my, my answer for how we wrestle emotionally with the experience of an unfulfilled desire for knowledge is to recognize, one, that you were made to know, and two, that you will know, because in the providence and timing of God, part of God's providence isn't just to say, nope, sit down, don't ask that question. It's to grow you up to the fullness of God in Christ, so that sometimes, even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can know things that we otherwise couldn't know. Mm-hmm. but also looking forward to that day when we'll know even as we are known in the resurrection when, mm-hmm. you know, the veil does fall away from the mysteries once and for all. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a, um, a challenge. It goes against our nature and our culture to accept something as so mysterious for now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we live in the information age, right? I should be able to find the answer on Google in 60 seconds. Sure. But, uh, th- so this right here, th- this is another part of God's providence. It's not just that God uh, does what he will because he sees all ends and, and does what's best. But that pro- providence means that even the evil things that happen right now, the things that are undisputably wicked, that God does not cause, that God does not choose, that basically God, he's like the master of moral and ethical judo. Like, so if, like judo is the martial art where if you're really good at it, what you learn how to do is use your opponent's weight, momentum, strength against them. And in the providence of God, Every evil thing that comes into existence, God turns it to good. That all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And one of the good things that comes out of even an unspeakable tragedy like Simon's death is that it confronts all of us, Mm. saved, unsaved, walking with Christ for 60 years, brand new believer. It confronts us uh, with the reality of our limitations with uh, not, not just our own mortality, but also our finitude, that we can't, 
we can't figure out why this happened and what we're supposed to do about it and how we're supposed to react. And in the providence of God, one of the great good things that can come from even something as awful as the death of Simon and Evan and Jack is that we can turn to God for comfort and sometimes for answers. Hmm. I think the last part of what you said there brings to mind um, part of what Nick emphasized in his sermon about seeking to know God as a person, to know him personally, um, which doesn't take away from our desire to understand or to know why he's doing things or how things work, Mm -hmm. but um, it gives us a place to rest Mm -hmm. on his character and what we know about him personally in relationship with him, that the, the doctrines can't fill in all the holes for us. Um, no matter how good our doctrine may be, it will always be incomplete and will always leave us wondering why this particular thing happened or what God is trying to accomplish here. And um, in those moments, we have only to rest in what we know of his character. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Because when we want to know, we're, we're used to opening a book or looking it up on a database or, or punching it into Google. But when, events like these remind us that no matter how much we know individually or collectively as all of humanity, th- these events show us how little we actually know. Yeah, it, it just reminds me of um, lyrics of a song that were really comforting to me a few years ago when I was struggling with something the song says I trust your heart and your intentions hmm. and to have that perspective to meditate on that as I was really struggling with the unknown was that I, I have no idea what you're trying to work in this particular situation I don't know where I'm supposed to go or what hmm. I'm supposed to do or which way is up but I do trust your intentions hmm. I know that your intentions for me are good hmm. and um, that gave me sort of a a resting place in the midst of the storm uh, that I was personally experiencing. Mm. Yeah, that can be, uh, that can be such a hard thing to, to communicate to people who mm-hmm. haven't been there themselves. I mean, I think about the person who I asked. mean, if you haven't, if you haven't met a person, how do you transfer that knowledge to someone else? Right? Yeah. And I mean, if, whoever it was who wrote question three, talking about lacking an emotional connection mm. with God, um, this, this is one of the reasons why developing that emotional connection over time and, and with God's help can be so, so essential to our ability to persevere in the faith when we do run into those times where the only mm. answer is to say, I do not understand, but I trust. Mm. Yeah. And I think developing that trust, um, sometimes we can help that along in ourselves by intentionally meditating on how we've seen God provide or come through and sort of making those monuments in our mind um, or collecting stories from other people, their testimonies, reading the testimonies of other people of how God has provided gives us sort of a, a landmark to say he has done this. So uh, that tells me something about his ability and his goodness that lets me plant my feet uh, on something and then to meditate on that can almost stir that, give us a sort of jump start for that emotion of um, like feeling something about those realities, those things that he has done. And that just sitting and thinking on our own 
um, we don't really have anything to grasp onto sometimes. Gosh, that is so right, Hannah. Yeah. I mean, this is like the point to Israel's feasts, Mm -hmm. remembering that they were slaves in Egypt Mm -hmm. and that they were brought out. Or, you know, when you go to, when you go to the book of Hebrews, when the author just runs down that famous list of examples of faith and and the results that come from, Mm -hmm. from faith in God, encouraging his audience to do the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Memory is, uh, we could say a lot more about memory right. in the church. The stones of remembrance yeah, that, exactly. that he leads Israel to, mm-hmm. to place. Let's end with one last question. This is um, pulling out of our archives a little bit, a question we haven't been able to get around to. From the sermon of August 27th, I believe Pastor Mike preached on that day. And the person writes, I have a close friend who grew up going to church with me, and she still calls herself a Christian. However, as a single mom, she says she doesn't have time for praying or reading the Bible. How can I gently approach her on this when she isn't open to making time for those things? Speaking as a parent of relatively young children, I have, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And uh, you know, for the, first, for the first couple of years of my wife and I's parental journey, we, we lived in Australia like eight to 10,000 miles from family. We were, we became parents in the pandemic where, you know, you couldn't even legally hire a babysitter, even if you wanted to. So I deeply empathize with the, the circumstances of the single mom, because it was hard enough as a couple, mm-hmm. let alone as a single mom. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the first thing that I, I would say is that part of being the body of Christ who wants to include folks like single mothers in our midst is we need to actually be aware of the intense struggle that all parenting comes with. There are no off days in parenting. The demands don't cease. And uh, for someone like, it sounds like this single mom who is really invested in her parenting, uh, the demands of love and caring for young children can be nearly all consuming and the always changing demands the always cha- that's right you master <laughs> right. them one month and then and then the next month they, they've changed just just when you think you get ahead of it yeah yeah hannah you know <laughs> <laughs> not as well as you do but i'm learning fast <laughs> so the first thing i would say is that before any of us approach this woman to encourage her to pray or read the bible more i would uh I would never want to bring that encouragement without also trying to make space for the opportunity. So is there anything that we can do to take something off this person's plate to give them the practical opportunity to open their Bible and pray? Um, that, I think, is one of the most encouraging things that we could possibly do. Um, but the other thing that I would say, and this is, this is something that I have also learned, but that I always kind of knew, but I mean, I grew up going to public school and the church that I, that I uh, attended made a pretty, you know, pretty regularly complained that God had been kicked out of public schools and that, you know, prayer was no longer allowed in public schools. And I would walk through the halls of my school and pray all the time and nobody stopped me. Right. Um, so I think that for this single mom and for all the other parents out there are single or whether, you know, a husband and wife couple, 
yeah, your devotional life and the structure of your devotional life has almost certainly changed since you became a parent. But this is why one of the, the most fascinating and humbling commands in scripture, and I'm pretty sure this is first Thessalonians is to rejoice always and pray continually. That literally anything, any time, anything you're doing is an opportunity for prayer. And it, you don't always even need to stop what you're doing to pray. Uh, so one little spiritual classic that I'll also mention, since apparently I'm, I'm turning this into like a book recommendation. AMA. Just for the listener's sake, we will um, link to these things in the show notes. So so uh, there, were, there was a monk named Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, and he wrote a tiny little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And uh, unlike a lot of other books that we have from like spiritual heroes and monasteries written over the last thousand years, Brother Lawrence was a cook. And this is is what he did in the monastery. It's like he was the monastery cook. So he's getting up and he's making meals for a couple hundred monks a couple times a day. But eventually his, his like spiritual superiors noticed that this guy had an unusually intense devotional life. And so they made him write it down. And he basically teaches how like for him slicing vegetables for the soup became prayer and uh now if anybody was to like pick up my day timer and look at my calendar they would see that like even in my calendar so that nobody can take this away from me i have scheduled times of prayer and bible reading and there are other people who have access to my calendar and can make changes and add meetings here or there but they can't move that like the, the prayer, the dedicated prayer time is essential. But I also have in mind the example and the challenge of like First Thessalonians and, and Brother Lawrence so that I am always trying to live aware of the presence of God and directing my intention and my attention toward him. And that's something that uh, even a way overworked, exhausted single mother can do. And that sometimes we only really learn to do as Christians when we're put in situations as intense as this single mother is currently experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few books come to mind that the titles escape me now, but this is a few books have come out in the last five or 10 years about um, sort of reviving this practice of like praying the hours and these daily um, meditative tasks of cooking the food, of washing the dishes, of cleaning, bathing your child, of, you know, taking out the trash and all of these things to help us think of them as uh, moments where Christ is present with us and when we can commune with him and be of service to him and with him. Um, and maybe if we think of some of those titles, we can link them as well. I feel like the Liturgy of the Ordinary is one yes, of them. Yes, that's yeah. one. Yeah, that's one. Is that's that Lauren Winner? I can't remember. I can't remember either. Yeah. Um, what would you say? I think those are really great suggestions um, and really applicable for me personally, as I'm struggling with all my ever-changing routine with a young child too. Um, but what if this, um, you know, in the case of someone who receives all those suggestions and then still doesn't seem interested. You know, how would you counsel this friend to talk to her single mom friend? Um, if after all of this has been sort of parsed out and like she's provided like, you know, what if I watch your kids so that you can have this time or things like that? Um, 
and there still seems to be this sort of hardness or disinterest, then how would you counsel the friend to minister? I'd probably counsel the friend to keep doing exactly what mm. they were doing. Mm. Um, it's like, in some, in some sense, it's kind of like giving charitably to people who are in financial need. Like you think, if you think that you could spend the money that you give better than they could, the people you're giving it to at the end of the day, you've, you've already like departed from Christian charity. Like you, you don't, you don't give to them. You don't give to someone who has financial need because you know how that person ought to spend their money. You give to them because the Lord says to remember the poor and to give to everyone who begs from you. And in the same way, if you're going to give of your time and try to support a single mother, do it because you love that woman and love her child or her children. And because however the single mom chooses to fill that time, she will be a better person and a better mom for having had the opportunity to like unclench every muscle in her body for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that, and that trickle down effect will manifest in better parenting. Mm. So your love will not have gone in vain just if the single mother doesn't spend the time in the way that you would maybe hope she would. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, those were a lot of great questions. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in your questions and I'm really grateful to see everyone really wrestling with these important issues relative to faith and the gospel. And um, we pray that something in this podcast will have been encouraging and edifying for you as well. Um, if you liked this episode, you can rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with a friend. If there is a topic you'd like us to discuss, please do send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode. Anything you'd like to say as a sign-off, Devin? Thanks for taking a minute to talk with me, Hannah. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure. And um, thanks for your willingness to do this at the last minute. <laughs> Always an honor to be asked. Um, thanks so much, everyone. Hope you have a great day. Bye. episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts, or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.